now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. The forensic advancement season of Just Science will focus on many areas that challenge forensic leadership within the community. In episode two of the forensic advancement season, Just Science interviews Dr. Cecilia Krauss, formerly the Crime Laboratory Director for the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, about the 2009 National Academies report. The conversation also dives into Dr. Krauss's experience, leadership, and the difference between academic and laboratory science. This month, the FTCOE will be releasing a report written with Dr. Krauss on Forensic DNA Unit Efficiency Improvement Program, EIP. This episode, as well as the report, is available at ForensicCOE.org. Follow the FTCOE on Facebook and Twitter, or sign up for the newsletter to be notified when the report is released. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, funded by the National Institute of Justice. We're here this week at the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors Meeting in Atlanta. And it's a wonderful opportunity for the podcast today to visit with one of my favorite crime laboratory directors, Dr. Cecilia Krauss. Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to call you Cece. Uh, Absolutely. And Dr. Krauss is the lab director in Palm Beach County, Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office Crime Laboratory, accredited ISO 17025, and has been with Palm Beach for 21 years, including 16 years as the manager of the Forensic Biology Unit. And how long have you been the crime laboratory director? Uh, for 10 years. I've been there since 1992, so it'd be 26 years, and I was in DNA the whole time and for about 18 years, and then for the last 10 years I've been the crime lab director. So Cece is fast becoming one of the most important voices within forensic science in terms of understanding kind of where we've been and where we're going. I, uh, I've been trying to get Cece on the podcast for a while, so this is a great Great chance to be able to have a conversation. Welcome to Just Science. Thanks. So, you know, we're at a very particular moment in time in forensic science, but we're kind of frozen in time also. So all this stuff from the 2009 National Academies report has been percolating now for nine years. It seems like just yesterday that the report came out. We have all these issues around cognitive bias and statistics and that kind of thing. And the progress that we're making some folks are unsatisfied with the progress. Others feel like we're changing too fast. Where is forensic science right now, do you feel, in terms of its response to the 2009 report? How good a job have we done? Well, I was the crime lab director for about a year before the report came out. I knew there was such a report. I was in a cocoon in the DNA section for a while. So if someone told me this report was coming out, I don't remember it. But I do remember Roger Kahn specifically saying that he was asked to take a look at some things. And when it came out, I read it like a Grisham novel. <laughs> I mean, top to bottom. And I was actually kind of surprised. I didn't think we were in as bad condition that this, <laughs> mm -hmm. that this report said we were, which meant I had to go back and parse out and 
kind of individualize every one of the recommendations and find out where we stood. I became selfish and wanted to know, well, where does Palm Beach County stand? So the first thing I did was I made a PowerPoint presentation, and all I did was I put the recommendations on there, and I presented it to all the managers. And one of the managers came up to me afterwards and said, you don't think we're a science. And I said, what? I'm just telling you what, what the report said. And the individual said, well, you wouldn't have done that had you not believed in what they were saying. And I was absolutely mortified at that comment. Sure. It was mainly because I've spent my entire adult life tinkering and beating things up. I don't, I, like, I don't consider myself the dean, like you say. I'm the custodial engineer. You learn <laughs> so much more on sure. that level mm -hmm. about how people act and what they think and how they think and how you fit in. And I used to call it, in fact, I still do, you know, trying to wade through Georgia clay. And I use that analogy because when I worked with Eli Lilly for five years in plant genetics, we would put our experiments out in this nice sand in Florida. We'd get great results, and then would ask to come to places like Florida and Alabama and put out the same experiments, and they had clumps here. They didn't have sand. And it was a lot more difficult to translate that. So it dawned on me I came from sand, and I was in, I was in Georgia clay now. I realized that the ASCLAD community asked for this particular document. And what they asked for, and I think what they received, were two totally different things. Oh, I tell you, Cece, I mean, I, not to be like I told you so, but I remember telling folks at the time in 2007 and 8, and even earlier, before it even got passed, because they've been pushing for it for a long time, I said, are you sure this is what you want? Because I think what they thought they were getting was a document that was going to come forward and say, oh, let's spend a lot of federal money on forensic science, and what they got was a document that at least in, it's not fair to say, but it says forensic science isn't science. That isn't really fair to say about the report. But that's kind of what the tagline became. I think it was Walt Whitman who said, the trouble with communication is the illusion it happened. <laughs> and I think that's what occurred here. So, you know, there was a cleanup on aisle five and six and seven as a result of this. But refusing to go into the store doesn't help clean it up. Right. And I think that I wasn't used to that. I was used to experiments not working and having grants that were due and having to go to a, essentially a profit-sharing company like Eli Lilly and explain why we don't have the magic seed yet and understanding what that might mean down the road. So I was really befuddled on why we weren't embracing certain aspects of it, going through and saying, okay, let's take all this fruit that came in this basket and you know, the stuff that's working, let's put over here. The stuff we're not sure about, let's put here. And the stuff that's not working, let's figure out you know, how to turn it into compost and you know, make more fruit. Sure. And that just didn't happen. So the first thing I did was I, I was on one of the soft, which is one of these committees that were the result of the actual recommendations. Now we're going to have these groups. We're going to get together and we're going to address them. Oh, okay. Because you don't have to address an NAS document, but the president can decide to do that. So the president did. And I was on accreditation, certification, and uh, proficiency. And it was really exciting because I am an absolute proponent for certification. Yeah. And there's this real fear of test taking or sitting on the witness stand and saying you didn't pass the test. And I will admit that there is a difference between what happens in academics in the laboratory and what happens in forensic science. And the absolute major difference is it is not unusual for forensic science to end up in a court of law. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the rules don't change on how to do science, but the rules change on how to do science. Yeah, I mean, what you're trying to communicate in a different format than science is used to communicating, right? No, it's not even that. Yeah? Tell me, what do you... I testified in a case in Kansas 
And one of the questions was, isn't it different, the science that you did at the university, isn't that different than forensics? And I said, oh yeah, it's very different. Most people in academics couldn't survive in forensics. <laughs> you, have to, you need to write down absolutely everything you've done. And it took me a, a really long time. I thought I was on the right ship that sailed, but I was actually at the airport. I just kept thinking to myself, when I was in academics and I was doing work, immunologic work, and I injected the tail vein of a mouse, and the mouse died, I checked it died. I didn't do a necropsy, I didn't measure it, didn't weigh it, didn't wonder, you know, what it ate. But in forensics, it was hard for me because I had to write down temperatures, and I had to write down reagents when I was making a buffer that was going to be gone in an hour. But it wasn't until I was on a witness stand and, uh, and I was asked about the water bath and about the kind of water that was being used. And I looked across and there's this young man and it's a capital case. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden that was just, you know, he deserves to know it's 37.5 degrees. He deserves to know that that reagent was made in the morning and I used it an hour and a half later. And then I got it, very slow on the uptake. Sure. So the science is the same, but it's different. Okay, no, that's very cool. That reminds me of when I first encountered forensic science because I was like you. Before we were recording, we were talking about how each of us came into forensic science, like, what the heck is this thing, right? And I had just come out of the research laboratory and just been doing some work um, looking at the genetics of biological warfare agents. And so we were doing PCR and other things like that, but it was so easy because we could control everything. And then I came across these crime laboratory people who were trying to do the same thing with crap from a real room, <laughs> you know, full of contamination, and they were making it work. I was like, how are these people even making it work? It's really extraordinary. So it's, it's different in that regard, too. There's this real-world thing happening that forensic scientists are trying to tackle that adds to the level of complexity you would never see in a scientific laboratory. Well, uh, that's correct. It's because forensic science is one big Venn diagram your law enforcement, your judicial system, it's the victims, it's the SARTs, it's, it's, it's this, this huge network that leads to this tiny little part where everybody intersects and that's the justice part. And you don't have to think about that when you're working in, in not only academics but also even when I worked in the pharmaceutical industry. But I, I think opportunities have been slow to actually come to fruition in a laboratory because people were insulted by the report. People took it personally. And when that happens, it's natural to step back and say, yeah, you and what army? Mm -hmm. I'm not doing anything wrong. It gets in. And that wasn't what the report was trying to say in my estimation. Mm -hmm. It was trying to say, you better be introspective. Right. Because it's important. So the number of uh, documents that have come out saying, hey, this supports our pattern science, or this supports the way we call mixtures in DNA, or this supports that this is cocaine, have been extraordinary in the last couple of years. I'm very, very proud of this community. My concern is factoring in the human. Mm -hmm. And when you factor in the human, and it was really interesting this morning, something that was said about millennials, and I really don't like that term because they're just this, this wonderful group of kids in my case, mm -hmm. kids that really want to do a good job. They really do, and they're, they're all in it. I will say, that they're being raised in this cognitive bias, human factor world. And in one instance, we had somebody on the sexual assault response team, and they started talking about a case, a mm -hmm. meeting, and right. this person was afraid that it might bias whatever they were going to do in the laboratory later, so got off of the SART. Ah, right. And it's this 
I don't even want to say black and white. It's a chasm. I should know up to this point, how am I going to control my brain if I know more? This whole trap that forensic science is in, because it is the only profession in criminal justice that tries to be above it all, right? It's like completely objective. A detective who goes off on a complete wild goose chase uses his or her judgment in a ridiculous way to get the wheels of justice off the rails is not told you're doing it wrong, right? A judge or a prosecutor or even a defense attorney does the same thing. They're meant to use their biases in some respects as part of who they are. Forensic scientists are the only folks, and partly because we call them scientists, right? We're applying science. What we give you is absolutely objective. And it raises expectations in a way that's very difficult to meet in the real world. But I think now it's not about the bias. It's about the awareness of the bias. And I bring somebody in every year for a four-hour workshop, and everybody has to attend, is to let them know that there's a difference between an error and a violation, that there's a difference between saying something and not saying something. There's a difference between saying that because I was trained this way, I can't think to the left and I can't think to the right. And that's the challenge. The challenge is for me to say, when you're in court and a judge says to the jury, disregard that remark, how does that work? <laughs> right. And the answer is, it doesn't. Yeah, it's, yeah, it it's doesn't. complete nonsense. <laughs> so as a result, all the stuff that's coming in, you know, it's like they say, um, I can't remember the name of the Greek philosopher, but he said the eyes are not responsible for what the brain sees. Mm -hmm. So just know that the eye's letting the brain in to see it. And then, then you'll be able to step back and say, you know, I, I didn't conduct the test this way. That wasn't my thought process. But I understand through our training and through all this information we have now that there's a possibility of cognitive or human factor issues. But I'm aware of it. Sure. That's the key to it. So what happens when you have these individuals who just are afraid to make a mistake? Because they're told in academics, you can make a mistake, make a mistake, make a mistake, but the last one better be okay. Mm -hmm. But not in forensic science. Yeah. And it's really interesting because most of the time, and I, and I don't mean this to be derogatory, what we're doing in the laboratory is in other academics and other industries' rearview mirror. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it was, it's been a very interesting journey. And the National Commission was very difficult for me. Sure. You know, I, I only have one color pair of shoes, and that's ruby red slippers, and I click them all the time, <laughs> you know? And I'm here to tell you, I don't mind going to Kansas. It's just this wonderful uh, amalgamation of, of ideas, and then you get into this commission, and everybody's compartmentalized. In the beginning, it was very, very difficult. I didn't quite understand where we were supposed to be, but I did know that human factors had to be a part of that. I was very, and I expressed this to you before, very frustrated by the commission. I think that they reflected too much a kind of thinking that's very different from how you're conceptualizing it. You're conceptualizing this idea of, I'm going to be aware of my biases, and that's going to allow me to do a better job in terms of how I build my SOPs and how I relate to other people and things like that. And I think there is an idea that we're going to eliminate bias, and people aren't perfectible. You know what I mean? I mean, there's this there is an understanding of cognitive psychology from B.F. Skinner, you know, beyond freedom and dignity, right? And we're going to just do your Pavlov's dog thing to you until you conform with what the ideal we're going to have for you is. And that still is not part of our culture too much where we think, look, 
you know, this person has that bias and that bias, and then it comes into the forensic science community in our little world here, and we're going to say, okay, well, you have biases. Now we're going to do everything we can to put you into a little box <laughs> and, and perfect you and your methods in a way that eliminates any potential of that problem, no matter whether we create 500 other problems at the same time. That's no way to solve it. I mean, you can't eliminate bias from the human endeavor. People, people really do more than just think like automatons. That's what's great about them. Yeah, and I, there's a part of that that you're, you're absolutely correct. First of all, you're not doing anything about it, which was not true. Right. And second of all, it was you don't care about it, which was not true. Mm -hmm. But third, it was there are people on death row because of you. It's like, what? You know? <laughs> and the commission was difficult. But I think part of it was because I understand wanting to have a commission with stakeholders. Mm -hmm. I get that. But I'm not sure how having aside from the, the federal agencies, three crime lab directors out of 30 to write policy for a crime lab, I don't know how all those voices don't end up being noise after a while. Sure. So we kind of got the hang of it towards the very end, but it was challenging. The amount of education it takes, and the disciplines are so much different. The paradigm example I, I love about that is fingerprints versus firearms identification. In a fingerprint identification, if anything disagrees, it's not a match. In firearms identification, just because of the physics of it, you're going to have disagreements between a piece of evidence and the reference casing. It's just That's how it is. You're looking for points of agreement. And there's very good reasons for the differences between those two different kinds of impression evidence. And that tells you something very fundamental about forensic science in the sense that it's really looking at very different kinds of physical and biological and chemical phenomena. And you, you need to have that depth of understanding in order to really come back and say, okay, well, now here's how you're going to deal with your bias. <laughs> well, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, when I first became the crime lab director, the first thing I did was I met with every one of the managers for an, an entire day. You know, what are your goals? What are your aspirations? And believe it or not, People really liked just where they were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it wasn't that they were comfortable and necessarily non-thinkers. I was in a different world. I was in this world where they were constantly changing instruments and kits and reagents and protocols and procedures to someone who could do this beautiful work with a microscope and have for 100 years. So then I ended up spending a day and a half with a firearm examiner. And I remember looking through this comparative microscope saying, but what about that difference right there? And he looked through the microscope and he leaned over and it was a tiny little filament. He blew on it and it went away. You know, <laughs> right. you know it was an artifact. <laughs> as far as I was concerned, you know, I can't possibly be. You almost caught him there. I know. <laughs> Not even close. Not even close. I had a real respect for people that made that their life's work because I... I don't know if I have that kind of acumen. I'm terrible at details, so I'd be terrible at any kind of forensic examination. With me, it's not the details. It's just that I can categorize them in a heartbeat, and I can interpret them till the cows come home. But what I didn't know is they don't interpret the entire cartridge casing. They don't start at one end and go all the way around. Then they do it twice just to be sure. That They have this wonderful skill set that mm -hmm. allows them to say, I chose this area. It's the area with the appears to be a stride of effects that I can definitely you know, compare or whatever the nomenclature is. And I think my science background and their science background, the approach was different. Mm -hmm. And I had to step back and I had to figure out you know, kind of how that works. But I'm all over C-safe and 
three-dimensional topography and all that. Oh, I'm a huge, as I don't know if you know, but I've, I've worked very extensively in the, in the optical topography area. Mm. And I honestly believe it can be a real revolution for firearms identification. And, but it really boils down to understanding how much can you get out of the imaging system and the interpretation the imaging system can use, the statistics that you can build off of that, which NIST is doing some amazing work in. And then from there, the human needs to pick it up because in the end, all of those things have limitations. There are assumptions involved with all of the uh, algorithms. There are limitations to the imaging. Even how beautiful it looks, no matter how gorgeous and amazing and, uh, and the resolution and the, and the depth of field and all of that, as amazing as it is, you need that human who knows how to make inferential judgments and knows how to see this bigger picture of it and also then knows what to do next, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and a matter of fact, after I read that tome on latent prints, the gap analysis, and I was reading about uh, environmental factors that may affect their instrument, which is their brain and their eyes, we ended up purchasing all brand new workstations that were identical to the Kamo, the 911 operators, where they go up and down and these $1,200 chairs that fit exactly to who you are. And so that at the end of the day, you're, you could be just as fresh as when you started at the beginning of the day. Mm. And I get that, that that's all part of making sure that you have whatever it takes to get the best result you can. But I still don't necessarily see running into my office and saying, hey, you know what would be really cool to try? I really like that. <laughs> and it just doesn't happen that often. Sure. I think if there was ever, God forbid, a crime committed against my family, man, I, anybody in the lab, mm. I don't care if they're latent prints, firearms, crime scene, tox cam, DNA, take it. Mm. You know, I have a tremendous amount of respect and, uh, and faith in the individuals. I mean, part of this, too, and I think one of the things that's kind of missing, and I'm actually part of a group that wants to do a conference just on this topic, and that is innovation in forensic science. And the issue... One of the issues is this uh, risk aversion among the forensic science community, which I think is appropriate because you are going to end up going into that trial space potentially with anything that you do and where you have a defendant who's going to want to know what the temperature of the water bath is. And if all of a sudden you've got a new technology for measuring the temperature of that water bath, you better know why that was better than the previous one and then how you validated it and that kind of thing. And that leads to a certain risk aversion with any kind of change, even change you know, around bias or quantitation or new technology or anything that you might be thinking about in the laboratory. Well, the validation is an interesting one because that's how I was raised, mm -hmm. validations. And like any good scientist, I think, it, you're really interested in what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You're really interested in those limitations so that you know when you're hitting it, or at least you're in that transitional phase where you're not sure if it's working or not, and then you have to make these decisions. And I think the pattern sciences just weren't sure where to begin with that. Mm -hmm. Where do you begin with the scientific method? Does it really apply? Are you really trying to validate one cartridge casing from one type of a gun when you've got 60 other types of guns and 100 more different types of ammunition? And it does seem overwhelming, and it does seem almost incredulous that you could actually transfer any knowledge from one set to the next. I I'm just a firm believer you got to try. I love Prince Henry the Navigator. And so he created one of the first government-funded research institutes. And it was in Portugal. He was the king of Portugal, even though he was called Prince Henry. And his thought was Portugal was going to take over global trade 
And the way they were going to do it was they're going to become the best sailors and cartographers in the world. And so they did research along that line. And so when the Portuguese would send the ships down to try to get around the Horn of Africa, sometimes the ship only meant one more mile, but they knew that mile, <laughs> right? They knew exactly what was going on for that mile. They knew exactly where it was, and they knew exactly what they were going to do next to try to get to the next mile. And so they were always increasing their knowledge base. There's nothing random about it. And that, that's what science really is. If there's anything that we need to learn now, is like it, you don't have to bite off the entire elephant. So you surprised me again in our pre-podcast discussion. I said that I thought we've made enormous progress on accreditation since 2009. Because certainly there are many, many more labs that have followed an accreditation regime and can say, hey, I've been accredited. Not everybody against an ISO, as Palm Beach is, but there certainly is a much more acceptance that that's part of who you are. Who are you if you're not an accredited lab, for goodness sake, in some way? But you've, you expressed some skepticism there. Tell me about why you feel that we aren't where we need to be in accreditation. Uh, we are where we need to be. It was the year you chose. Okay. 2009. We were going along that path already. Yes, we were going at quite a nice stride, actually. And everyone was, was gearing up. I think the, the misconception was that we were asking laboratories to, to buy into this accreditation. We weren't asking them anything. We were telling them. Sure. You're going to do it. And I had a manager tell me, I know we're going to do it. I'm just curious how you're going to make us. And he apologized years later because he's got this gorgeous manual now. And he's a part of something really important. I think we all went through those growing pains. But they started a decade before. Right. In 2009, the only thing that really happened in 2009 in the report was it said that it's not mandatory. It's, not, it's still not mandatory. Well, who's going to mandate it unless you're going to tie it to funding? And even that's a not really a very good mechanism. But I also think, on a different level, it's a good shaming device, you know? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So I'm, I'm very proud of how far we've come. And you're right, not everyone is accredited. And I don't know what to do with these areas of law enforcement where you have maybe two or three latent print examiners. And they're nervous. They want to know. They, how do you help us? And how do we get on a witness stand and say, yes, we're accredited? And, and I really thought that the commission was moving in a really good direction with that in the very beginning when we wanted BJS to send out a survey saying, how many of these little labs are there out there, sure. are these entities? And I'm just really past the accreditation. I'm well into the certification, which you talk, about walking, talk, through, about, that, you talk about walking through Georgia Clay. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So uh, certification and proficiency testing. But let's start with certification, because that's really, I will make the case with you quite strongly we are nowhere near where we need to be in certification. Now, we're the only lab in the state of Florida, I know, that's mandatory requirement for uh, employment. And there were huge growing pains. We went from 3% in 2009. And I thought that document was going to give us what we needed. Uh, we're a little over 80% now. We've really made a lot of strides with that. But we had unions. We had people saying, when I was hired, I didn't have to have this. I don't know why I have to have it now. But now that we're hiring people, the entry level, I will say that this is a, a caveat, the entry level, you don't have to be certified, but you're not going to go anywhere unless you are. Right. So almost everyone's taking the, the test to go further. I'm not saying there shouldn't be a revamping of some of the testing. I mean. But that's happening. Yeah, it's true. The certification, but our certification regimes generally aren't ISO compliant. I mean. That's Very, correct. You almost no uh, certification regimes in forensic science are ISO. They're heading in that direction, mm -hmm. and 
then there was an entity that um, actually followed the, the template. Yes. But that's different. It's a lot different if you have snowshoes on in the department store versus snowshoes on out of the lake. I mean, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah, and the problem is, is that, and we see this in accreditation too, when looking at the certification bodies just from a forensic science perspective is a problem just from the fact of, of the capacity because there's just not enough people who look at certification regimes in forensic science so that there is a regularity to it there is a predictability to it, and there is a rigor to it. You have to have inspectors. The best thing, I think, is to have inspectors who look at certification regimes all day long, and then they can look at forensic science in particular. And, and that's a step we haven't yet taken, and I think it's a major one, and it's a very important one. Well, I actually agree with you on that. When you've got forensic sciences like entomology, where mm -hmm. the, the people that are writing the exams or taking the exams, because there's just not enough people to have on the board, I'm not sure exactly how all of that irons out, but I think it's in a very important direction for forensic science to take. It's not just about credibility, it's about standardization. And I'm not averse to baseline foundational information. And I think certification, whether it's in medicine or whether it's your hairdresser or whatever, I think it says something very, very important about your skills and knowledge set. I've had this argument. I'm in the process of writing a paper right now on trying to uh, bring certification into a crime laboratory. And it's painful. Mm. It is. And I'm here to tell you, I took the test to say, see, I took the test. It was hard. Right. And I studied. It was not easy. And I can give you all the excuses in the book, you know, about why it may have been harder for me than someone else. But the bottom line is this has to proceed in the future. It really does. Well, now the Texas Commission, the St Texas State Forensic Science Commission, has now mandated licensing. And what licensing means is a little different from certification, but in the end, I'm sure uh, you know they, they're still working it to some degree, but it looks like it's going to have a very tight tie to certification for obvious reasons. And I really l like the basic idea. And I'll tell you what I'm thinking, and that is I worry that we, we, th we worry too much about that trial, right? Is there any other profession where, like if you're a plumber, if you have a problem with your plumber, the last thing you want to do is sue the plumber when something goes wrong, right? You, you want to be able to go to the plumber and say, hey, there was a problem, or to the plumber's association or the plumber's regu the regulatory body for plumbers and say, I had a problem, or the Better Business Bureau, or some, something else like that to say, my plumber messed it up. The last thing you want to do is have to take the plumber to court because, you know, that's such a, a morass uh, and you don't want to spend two years with your home flooded in the meantime, right? But that's kind of what our expectation is from forensic science. We wait for the adversarial court system to tell us there's a problem. And the idea that either a Texas commission uh, through a certification process can have this kind of responsibility. You know, there is a way for us to say, all right, whether it be an error or a violation, it's getting identified, it's being dealt with, and there's an avenue for it short of we're going to litigate it for the next five years and, and do a Daubert hearing in some undefined future about it. We need to have that mechanism. We need to have a different mechanism than that, than that court case to be able to help the forensic science community do improvement on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, I'm not sure if you're talking about something that's intrinsic to a laboratory that have been taught incorrectly, the validation studies weren't done well, 
and now they're putting out casework and they're going to have to go back because there's a reporting mechanism for that. Sure. And part of that reporting mechanism is, and I'm not shifting the burden, might sound like it, the defense can always say, my expert says that you really have a problem here. Mm-hmm. And the prosecution can say to the defense, your lab has an issue here and we're going to get that thrown out. I think there are mechanisms much more so than the plumber even. Because mm-hmm. the plumber doesn't want to go to court either. We have this process of litigation that involves depositions and they involve motions to suppress. And they, I mean, everyone gets their chance. I know that there's issues out there with this has always gotten in and it will always get in and it's not fair because it's not real science. I get that. But the whole of it is that we're not just self-reporting because we found out you know, somebody was stealing cocaine or somebody in evidence was stealing money. It really has to do with everything from the heirs to the violations. But that could eventually, will eventually, be self-reporting or obvious to the judicial system. And it will work its way through that. I don't think in the case of forensic it necessarily takes years to figure out somebody is doing something really, really wrong. Well, sometimes it does. I mean, the classic Amy Duke and stuff, but also Detroit. You know, I mean, uh, uh, Houston and other things. There needs to be mechanisms. Certification is one. State commissions is another. Accreditation to some extent, but not necessarily as strong because it's kind of a different kind of deal. And not mechanisms that are punitive, just mechanisms for the system to correct itself. It's like when you, uh, in criminal justice theory, one of the things that you see is if you act more quickly, you don't have to act as punitively in order to have a positive impact. And waiting for that court case to tell you that there was a problem kind of raises it in a way that may not necessarily be very healthy. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying now. But I think that the identification of the kinds of issues you're talking about happens because of something called transparency. Sure. And almost in every example you gave, there was a lack of transparency. Once a laboratory has established that, that in truth, you can't buy. So I think it mitigates having an issue go on for year after year after year. We call it landing on the front page. We don't want to be on the front page. Sure. And I do random case file reviews. And I call somebody in my office and I said, oh, they, they didn't catch this. Oh, well, we don't put it in the report. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? And why is that? Well, they're going to misinterpret it. That can't be the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. but, That's really bad. But what was interesting, what I find interesting is there's, what, eight, nine, ten people, and no one thought to say, I don't get it. Why aren't we doing this again? So I marched down there, and I put everybody in a room, and I said, we're going to watch Dare to Disagree. It's a TED Talk. It's one of my favorite. Mm-hmm. You have to dare to disagree. Otherwise, this isn't going to work. And always, always, because the nice thing about this particular talk is it tells you how to disagree, not just that you should. So I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't really happen. really hard. <laughs> Transparency is difficult, too. Uh, it's, daring to disagree is difficult, but transparency is even more difficult. Well, let's take an example, going back to Houston. So Peter Stout at the Houston Forensic Science Center is now practicing what he likes to call radical transparency. And so it's like, it's all here, right? Let me show you everything that's going on. And they also have a wonderful blind uh, proficiency program, and we actually help with that on uh, some of the samples that he uses to put in blind into the system. And, And that's all fantastic, but on the flip side of that is 
that a lot of that transparency is misinterpreted in the media all the time. I mean, there was just in this past month, they had a very particular, very technical issue in some of their tox testing. And it, it affected one of the leading commercial laboratories, which is beyond reproach in terms of the best. And it was all like, well, we're going to have to throw everything out. Now, I know they won't. I know they'll be able to correct. But transparency is a huge risk in forensic science. It has not always been well treated by the defense bar or the media or everybody else in terms of it's kind of, kind of the reciprocity of, of responsibility. It's better than the alternative. Yeah. Far better than the alternative. Give me transparency any day. I can only control what I can control. Yeah. As simplistic as that sounds, my job isn't to make anybody a molecular biologist or a toxicologist. <laughs> right, right. I'm concerned on the inside. Sure. <laughs> but on the outside, I don't see an alternative. That implies a trust in you. It implies that you trust the people that you report to in Palm Beach County. Because one public official who decides to choose venality over making a tough choice make, that makes the whole thing collapse, or could. I don't know. I think as long as your house is transparent, if someone all of a sudden can't see through the house, there's going to be a reason. That right. wall was put up for a reason. Yep. And who wants to explain that? Yeah, sure. So if their house all of a sudden has a bunch of walls in it, I don't have to explain that. I don't want to explain that. I, I can't control what a, what a reporter says about our, our sexual assault initiative. I can't, I can't control what a commissioner may say about the way we're spending money. All I can do is show the supporting documentation. This right. is it. We put all of our training manuals and all of our protocols and procedures on our PBSO public website. And we had to take down the forms because people were filling them out and sending them in. Hey, I, I had jewelry stolen. Can I please have it back? And it's like, no, you know, it's not the way it works. So we pulled those back. Sure. But I, I don't know if we can do anything but learn from all this transparency. Sample only. So I, I, I'm excited about that. Whenever we give a presentation to the state attorneys, we always reach out to the public defender's office and they always say yes and we always go down there and maybe the questions are different sure and maybe the, you know when each group falls asleep may be different but i'm comfortable in knowing that if they have a question they know that they're going to get the best answer we can give them by experience i've learned to trust the public defenders and the defense bar more than the media in the, in the sense that they're almost always trying to get to the truth. Usually they're very frustrated. It's just like, you know, help me understand. And they feel very divorced from the process and as outsiders. And it's just like, educate me, first of all, about what I can and can't look for, what I should be looking for here. And also educate me about what, what you did. And not everyone, but the vast majority that they respond enormously favorably to that. We're not there to make them comfortable. We're there to make them better. Right. If they want comfort, they actually have a hotel named after it. So I, I don't, <laughs> well, I am certain that's not our goal. Sure. If they don't want to be better, that's one thing. If they want to know more, if they want to be a molecular biologist, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll help them along that line. Mm -hmm. I don't have any problem with that at all. I mean, like I say, give me that any day. So you have 80% of your people certified. How much, how much PT work are you doing? How are you solving that problem? Like, Peter has really gone 
overboard, and I think in a wonderful way, in Houston. I don't think anybody else is doing that level of blind work in their laboratory. Well, I know that the federal laboratory has actively initiated it in DNA. We service 32 agencies that use 32 different kinds of evidence bags and 32 different kinds of evidence tape, and uh, the individuals that bring these in are, they're their evidence coordinators, who know our evidence coordinators. Who I mean, it's, it's I can't say we've tried. I'm just trying to figure out how that would happen. And now that we're doing Lean Six Sigma, it's even tighter how things need to be submitted. And I think that the forensic laboratory is far better off today than, than they were in 2009 because of the introspection that that document sent forward, mm. regardless of how, how much recalcitrance there was to change. I've kind of been honored to be a part of that transition that was just one of those uh, forensic global events. Right. Implosions. That hurt. I mean, it was painful. But I, I don't remember the last thing I learned anything by doing it right. And then to find out that what they thought you were doing wrong was right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's like they say that there's like, what, six steps to critical thinking. And th the first step is you don't realize that you're not thinking well. Mm -hmm. You don't even care. And then the next step is the challenge to say, wait a minute, this is not helping me the way I'm thinking. I don't know what to do about it. So that by the time you get up to the sixth step, where you are at the highest level of critical thinking, it's the difference between step six and all the other steps is you've left your ego behind. And that's what kind of was getting in the way. And that's what I think uh, establishments like ASCLAD sat back and said, look, at, let's rethink what they're saying and why they're saying it, why we need to move forward, and, and what are we doing right, what are we doing right, what are we doing right. I'm just really proud of the entire community, to be honest with you. Well, yeah, and I think part of that also, and from the, again, from a scientist's perspective, I think about the answers are actually relatively easy once you understand the questions. And I think that's really, if there's been struggle, when there's been struggle, it's because we don't know all the questions to ask. You know, I mean, how do we even know how to ask the question about cognitive bias in particular in each of the different disciplines? It's not a simple thing, and it really does vary across different practices and, and things like that. And we're starting to learn how to ask those questions and ask even questions about, well, what do we mean when we say that we're going to quantitate a particular decision? And how are we even going to report it out? How are we even going to state it and what the meaning of it is in a way that, that translates to a jury and to the officers of the court? These but isn't really, that the exciting part? It is exciting. I love it. <laughs> I mean, isn't it? I'm not sure everybody does love it in forensic science, but I love it. To me, that's part of the definition of being a scientist. You literally live to answer not the question, but the right question. Yeah. It should be the answer. Part of what forensic science would appreciate more than anybody else because they do care. It's just like, I have this piece of evidence. I need to know what question I'm asking about that evidence. I do think that, again, circling back to academics when I really thought that the viral, when I was in virology, the, the work that I was doing was, you know, made a contribution. This job makes a difference. It does both. Sometimes it is a true, honest to God, just labor of love. And that's where you end up in the system. I, I can't imagine going back to academics, to be honest with you. Well, Cece, I, I, again, to repeat, I was trying to corner you last year at ASCLAD, trying to get you to come on to Just Science and share some of your wisdom and you uh, have not disappointed. I very, very much appreciate the conversation. I thank you so much for being on. Oh my gosh, you're welcome.
Next week on Just Science, Dr. Paul Speaker joins us to talk about the jurisdictional return on investment for DNA databases. The majority of these interviews were recorded at the 2018 ASCLAD Annual Symposium in Atlanta, Georgia. If you have an interesting case and would like to be a guest on our next season, which will be recorded at the 2019 ASCLAD Symposium, please visit our podcast landing page at ForensicsCOE.org forward slash Just Science Podcast. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.